This week on Life and Faith. When people were trying to understand why are these bad things happening, often their answer was because Satan is at work in the world and there is in fact a witch in our community. We have this sense that we've got to always say yes to every opportunity. And of course in politics there is a real tendency to be looking for the decision that gives you the media hit. Definitions of human nature affect who counts as human. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And today on Life and Faith, we're talking about... It's the single greatest witch hunt in American history, probably in history, but in American history. Of course, Donald Trump is here referring to his own impeachment, the first one. He's used the same language about the second impeachment as well. But today we're harking back to the actual greatest witch hunt in American history. We know a lot about what happened in Salem in 1692. It has been one of the most studied subjects in early American history. I think people are fascinated and disturbed by the story. So there are a number of different angles to understand. And I think the most important way to think about Salem is that it was a kind of perfect storm of all kinds of historical factors that collided in that particular place. This is Catherine Breckus. She's a professor of the history of religion in America at Harvard Divinity School. And she's our guide today through the thickets of this endlessly fascinating slice of history, the Salem Witch Trials. Now, Salem looms large in the popular imagination. There have been movies and novels, famously the play The Crucible. And the name Salem is synonymous with that year or so back in 1692 and 1693 when a New England community basically imploded, ultimately accusing more than 200 of their own of witchcraft and causing the deaths of 24 of them. Most of what you'll hear in this episode comes from one of the 50-plus interviews we did for our documentary, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. It's got quite the afterlife, this project. Uh, There was so much gold from these interviews that we couldn't include in the documentary without making it about 75 (laughs) hours long. So of late, we've been making the interviews themselves available in digestible bites on our website. Yeah, so we decided to devote a whole episode to what happened in Salem, partly because this interview with Catherine Breckis was so riveting, and partly because revisiting this history, the parallels with our own time were kind of unnerving. At the end of the episode, we go back to Catherine Breckis a few years on from the original interview to ask her about some of those parallels. But first, what did happen back then and why? And just as we begin, a quick content warning. This episode does contain discussion of some quite traumatic events. So do with that what you will. There were factional tensions in Salem Village where people had been fighting for years before the Salem outbreaks. Um, There were tensions around the church in particular. The Salem Village Church had had a series of ministers, none of whom had stayed very long. That was really very unusual in early America. Ministers usually stayed in churches for their entire careers. But nobody could stay at Salem because the church members were so contentious that they would eventually stop 
stop paying the minister's salary and the minister would be forced to leave. So Samuel Paris became the minister in 1689 and his response to those kinds of factional tensions was to start preaching as if uh, the devil was at work in his opponents instead of trying to figure out how to heal divisions in his church. He portrayed it as a sort of us versus them, that there were good people in Salem, he was one of them, and then there were evil people who um, were not doing God's work. And so he really set the stage for what happened in Salem. A church community divided and paranoid, a religious leader who fed and exploited that. Now there's other larger scale background to understand here as well. Besides those religious issues, there were also um, some economic tensions. The late 17th century was the era that witnessed the beginnings of merchant capitalism. And it's clear that Salem, which was located along the coast of Massachusetts, was starting to become more involved in international trade. And there were some people in Salem who really welcomed that and others who found that very threatening and scary. So there was a sort of episode of anxiety and fear about commercial changes. It's also the case that Salem was the place where a number of refugees from Indian wars in Maine had settled. And so those people brought with them horrifying memories of Indian massacres, of scalpings, and they were ready to see the devil at work. And so all of these issues converged in Salem. And when we look back, we can see that if we could just change one thing or the other, Salem would not have taken place. Uh, It reminds us of how contingent history is. But all these factors converged, and the result was that 20 people were executed. For such an iconic piece of American history, it's strange to think how small, in a sense, the whole story is. In 1692, Salem Village had a total population of maybe 550 people. It's a very small community. We know the names of lots of these people. And research, as well as later reimaginings, almost make us feel like we know them. It's a reminder that history is fundamentally about actual people and specific things that they did or that happened to them on specific days. The crisis began in the household of Samuel Paris. Samuel was the minister of the village church, and he had been preaching sermons that sounded apocalyptic, in which he was a kind of Jesus figure who was being persecuted by the people who opposed him. And his daughter and his niece started behaving oddly. Um, They were supposedly crawling around underneath tables, speaking in odd voices. His daughter was nine and his niece was 12. And so he brought in a doctor to examine his children. And the doctor said he couldn't find any medical cause and he thought that they were bewitched. This is one of the moments where if Samuel Paris had said, I think there's a medical cause or we can deal with this at home, the entire crisis would have stayed uh, very localized. But instead, he became convinced that his children had been bewitched. And then a prominent man in the community, Thomas Putnam, who was one of Samuel Paris's very close supporters, his daughter 
and his wife and his servant girl all claim that they also had been afflicted and that there were witches who were tormenting them. So it started very small um, in two households and then it began to spread through the rest of the community. More and more people found themselves vulnerable to accusations of witchcraft. The youngest accused was Dorcas Good, who was, get this, just four years old. She spent eight months in the prison's dungeon with her mother, Sarah Good, who was later executed. Dorcas was released. As the accusations multiplied, one man in particular became a focus for the accusers. When George Burroughs became the minister of Salem Village Church in 1680, he was supported by some of the families, but he was strongly opposed by the Putnam family. The Putnams were a well-to-do family. They were large, and they had a lot of power in the village. So from the initial time that George Burroughs began his ministry, the Putnams opposed him. They were behind the group who eventually decided to just stop paying his salary. So when the witchcraft panic began, Anne Putnam was Thomas Putnam's daughter, and she is the one who initially named George Burroughs as a wizard and in fact claimed that she had seen him in a vision leading satanic masses right next to the church that he used to lead. We can talk about larger scale issues like economic change or political conflicts, but witchcraft accusations always started out of conflicts between individuals. And Thomas Putnam in particular um, was very angry at a number of people in Salem, and he personally swore out accusations against 35 witches and helped write 120 depositions against people in Salem who he believed had been involved in witchcraft. The story of George Burroughs shows how Christianity played a part on both sides of this tragedy. The former minister, dragged back to his old parish to answer to charges of witchcraft, used the Bible to make his defense in court. It didn't work. George Burroughs, as one of the accused, argued that um, the people of Salem had betrayed their Christian faith by persecuting innocent people. So the story is that as he was climbing the ladder that would take him to the gallows to be hanged, that he exhorted people not to send any more innocent people to death, and that he said the Lord's Prayer out loud. There were people in the crowd who, when they heard this, wanted to rescue him. But this is the other side of Christianity. Uh, Cotton Mather, who was a very prominent minister in New England, was attending Burroughs' execution. And when it seemed as if the crowd wanted to rescue him, he was on his horse and he started exhorting the crowd not to believe that Burroughs was a genuine Christian. And he said, you have to remember that the devil can come clothed like an angel. And so at that moment, George Burroughs was put to death. One of our most enduring mental images of the Salem Witch Trials is a kind of cross between a courtroom drama and a horror movie. The very controversial thing that happened at Salem is that the leaders, the judges, decided that they would accept so-called spectral evidence as the truth. There were girls who claimed to be afflicted by witches, 
And when those accused witches were brought before them, the girls would claim that the specter of um, one of those witches was attacking them, biting them, pinching them, tormenting them in some way. The girls would fall into fits on the floor of the place where the jury was sitting. And so the judges became convinced that these girls were genuinely afflicted and they were willing to use evidence that only the girls could see. This is eventually how the trials fell apart because the girls began accusing more and more people, more and more prominent people, and some ministers objected to using invisible evidence as the grounds for executing people. The persistent question about what happened at Salem is, what was going on for these girls? A lot of theories have been floated about this over the years, including the possibility of some kind of autoimmune disease or a sickness resulting from a fungus or some unidentified toxin. Is there a medical explanation for what they experienced or claimed to experience? Arthur Miller, of course, in his play The Crucible, brought out a theme of the sexually repressed adolescent girl and how dangerous she could be. Oh, John, give me a soft word. Abby, I may think of you softly from time to time, but I will cut off my hand before I reach for you again. I know you, John Proctor. You love me. Whatever sin it is, you love me yet. I have a warrant for your wife. For what crime? And what proof? Who charged her? Well, Abigail Williams charged her. Abigail wants me dead, John. You know it. I am but God's finger, John. If he would condemn Elizabeth, she would be condemned. That's Winona Ryder and Daniel Day-Lewis in the 1996 movie of The Crucible. So what do we know about these girls, the real ones, living and breathing and accusing their nearest neighbours of heinous crimes in Salem in 1692? At Salem, the crisis started with a number of younger women, some children, some adolescent girls, some women in their 20s. And historians have always wondered what to do with their stories. These girls and young women claimed that uh, they were being tormented, they fell into fits. And so for a long time, I think historians said that they had just been faking it. But the more that we've learned about them, the more that historians have wondered whether at least some of them may have been acting out uh, traumatic experiences that they had had in the past. So we know that at least four of the afflicted girls had lived in Maine during Indian raids, that they had seen horrifying attacks on Puritan communities in Maine. One of the, the girls, Mercy Short, had lost both of her parents in a raid and then was taken on a forced march um, by the Wabanaki Indians to Canada. On that march, she saw a Puritan man who was tortured to death with fire, and then he was dismembered. She saw a five-year-old boy who was killed with a hatchet blow. She saw a teenage girl who was scalped. 
So these are the kinds of experiences that she had been through. She was then held in captivity for eight months before she was ransomed, and she was then put in a family in Salem as an indentured servant. She was one of the girls who claimed that she was being afflicted by Satan. And when she was asked to describe what the devil looked like, she claimed that he was a tawny man. Um, and she described him as looking like an Indian. So our hypothesis is that at least some of these girls may have been suffering from something like post-traumatic stress disorder. There seemed to have been a lot of these girls who had lost at least one parent and were dealing with other kinds of psychological issues. And some people have speculated that the girls, at least some of them, may have been suffering from what psychologists call a conversion disorder, um, which is where people act out their psychological pain. This happened most famously recently in a community in New York where a number of adolescent girls were all afflicted with similar neurological symptoms in 2012. And doctors really struggled to figure out if there was some common cause and finally decided that this was a, a psychiatric issue and that psychological distress can in fact be sort of catching. And there was an epidemic in the school of neurological symptoms. So people reading about that episode in New York have looked back to say maybe some of that was happening at Salem. You're listening to Life and Faith, and Professor Catherine Breckis from Harvard Divinity School is taking us back to the scene of the most notorious witch hunt in history, Salem 1692. Now, I got to visit modern-day Salem in Massachusetts when we were filming for the documentary, and uh, it's a lovely little town, and I have to say they've gone all out on this identity of the witch place. This is the foundation of their tourism industry, it I is imagine. a lovely little town with a harbour and lots of little wooden houses, and it's beautiful. But for sure in the main part of town, a couple of streets where their shops seem to be all about the witch identity, little tourist shops of, where you can buy T-shirts and mugs and all this sort of stuff. And it's like Halloween, 12 months of the year. I mean, this is, it's interesting, the spectrum of how witchcraft is treated, how it kind of functions in contemporary Western culture. There's, at one end, it's almost exotic and glamorous and almost cozy about witchcraft as tourism. But at the other end, you have Christians burning Harry Potter books, um, as some have mm, been right. known to do. Yes, and there's lots to explore there, perhaps. But you tell me, Natasha, that witch hunts are not entirely a thing of the past, right? Yeah, I've read that United Nations agencies say that uh, around the world witch persecutions are actually on the rise, that the murder of supposed witches is in the thousands each year. Um, beatings and banishments happen like to millions of people. So this is not just yeah, I was, a thing from hundreds of years ago. I was astonished by that. But perhaps all of that makes it even more important to understand how these things come about, whether or not we're talking about actual literal witch hunts or the more metaphorical kind. Yeah, so coming back to the question of causes, religious belief, of course, is relevant here, but it's also complicated. Um, remember what Catherine Brecker said at the start, that Salem and episodes like it represent a perfect storm of historical factors. 
The Bible has a number of passages about uh, witches and witchcraft. There is a passage, for example, that says, any accused witch shall be put to death. But there are not huge numbers of passages about witchcraft. So in fact, there do not seem to have been large-scale witch hunts in Christianity until about 1580. The peak of witch hunting in Europe took place between about 1580 and 1650. And we, we only have sort of fragmentary understandings of the numbers because there were so many people who were persecuted. But anywhere between 50,000 and 100,000 people were put to death during this panic. Um, witchcraft in Europe, like witchcraft in America, was associated with women. It was also a response to political turmoil, to religious turmoil. The period between 1580 and 1650 overlaps with the religious wars between Protestants and Catholics. And so in that setting, the Bible was used to justify the scapegoating of some people as the source of evil. When people were trying to understand why are these bad things happening, often their answer was because Satan is at work in the world and there is in fact a witch in our community. Political instability and war, misogyny, tribal divisions within communities, the desire to find someone to blame for what's going wrong in the world. There's a lot of factors here. Now in Salem, it's hard to separate people's religious identity from their sense of political destiny as a colony, or again, from their personal hostilities. Religion was a key factor in the Salem witchcraft panic. It was not the only factor. In some ways, it's the language in which all of these tensions and anxieties gets expressed. But I think it's crucial that Samuel Paris was the minister who began whipping up fears about witchcraft. And the Puritans believed that they had a special relationship with God. They described themselves sometimes as the new Israel, modeling themselves on the Israelites in the Hebrew Bible. And because of that identity, they had a sense of themselves as being special and set apart, and therefore the devil particularly would want to afflict them. And you can see some of this in the Salem trials itself, where historians have recently done a lot of very meticulous research and have discovered that in Salem, 70% of the people doing the accusations belong to uh, the village church, and that most of the people who they were accusing of witchcraft were not full members of the church. They were legally required to go to church. Everybody had to attend church or they were fined, but only some people had come forward to make a testimony of their conversion and therefore had the right to baptize their children and to take the Lord's Supper. And that inner group, they were clearly targeting those who did not belong to the church. So there was a kind of us versus them mentality. There are many targets that the devil could take, but they thought that they were special and set apart, and therefore the devil had sent his minions specifically to Salem to try to destroy their community. Salem is a reminder of what can happen when a group of Christians take the Bible and focus on one aspect of it at the expense of the whole picture. 
The clergy played a crucial role both in whipping up the frenzy around witchcraft, but also trying to ameliorate it. So in Christianity, the belief is that there are not two equal separate powers. God is in charge of everything. There is a devil, but the devil is not equal in power to God. It's not a Manichaean system. So ministers would often point out that if there were afflictions happening in the community, that God was ultimately in control. So the, um, ministers were able to use the promises of Christianity to calm people down and to say, God is in control. God sees your suffering. You may not be able to see in this moment what God is doing to help you, but God is always present and the devil is never ultimately in control. God is always supreme. Along with religion and bound up with it, of course, was the sinister undercurrent of misogyny in all of this. Now, there were a handful of places in early modern Europe where more men were accused of witchcraft than women, but that was pretty rare. Misogyny was clearly an issue in Salem and in all the witchcraft panics. We know that the women accused of witchcraft outnumbered men four to one. The majority of men who were accused of witchcraft were associated with women who also had been accused. So it's usually it was guilt by association. There are a few notable cases where that was not true, but this is imagined as a, a women's crime. One of the things that we have discovered about the women who are accused of witchcraft in New England, and we would like to know more about in other places, 89% of the women accused of being witches in New England stood to inherit independent property of their own. The amount of property does not seem to have been significant. It's not as if these were wealthy women, and in many cases, in fact, they were poor women, but they stood to inherit something that was going to be their own in their name. And that was very unusual in early America. So these women were threatening understandings of male inheritance and also, I think, men's economic power. I don't know if you, like us, have been hearing some uncomfortable echoes of our own time in this trip down history lane. If this all doesn't seem quite as exotic and far off as we might like. Yeah, we did this initial interview with Catherine Breckis a few years ago, and given some of the things that have happened in those years, we thought it would be worth going back to her and asking what she thinks about some of these parallels. I see a lot of very disturbing parallels between this story of Salem and what we're seeing in the United States today. Uh, we have this conspiracy group, QAnon, who has claimed that there is a satanic conspiracy involving um, many democratic politicians, global elites, who are supposedly sexually abusing children, and this is truly bizarre, but uh, trying to harvest their blood. Um, there are bizarre stories about how there's some sort of chemical in children's blood that is either hallucinogenic or, um, this is where it gets even stranger, that it prolongs life or could even create immortality. 
And so it's like a dystopian novel or something. It's truly bizarre, um, but it is. It's sort of oddly familiar to me when I think back to Salem, when there were also people who thought that there was a satanic cabal who was interested in the exploitation of children. In Salem, not the sexual exploitation, but the torture and abuse of children. And so what we see is this, again, this fear of this group of evil people, and they are pure evil, they are satanic, who are threatening children. I think one of the things that's different here and what makes all of this particularly alarming is um, usually when we think about witchcraft accusations, we think about accusations from within a community and that the enemy is within. So, you know, what frightened people in Salem was the idea that there were witches among them and they looked like them, they talked like them, they dressed like them, they, they were not aliens. Um, what we see in QAnon and some of these conspiracy theories is this fear of an enemy within. Um, Hillary Clinton, for example, is sort of the consummate witch, but it's been joined to other kinds of fears of the enemy without or the perceived outsider. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in QAnon. These ideas about an elite drinking the blood of children sounds a lot like the, um, the Jewish blood libel from medieval Europe where Christians thought that Jews were slaughtering Christians in order to drink their blood. So there has been harness to this, you know, fear of enemies within this sort of fear of a global conspiracy. And often the language is about a global conspiracy of Jews and sometimes also Muslims. So this does seem to me like a, a very frightening situation. I mean, we often say about these terrible episodes of history, we say never again, we study the past so that we won't repeat it. Are there lessons we can learn from Salem to help us navigate this moment? How depressing that we just keep doing the same thing. It is depressing. Um, unfortunately, misogyny seems to be so deeply rooted that, you know, from the time of Salem to today, so much has changed for women, of course. Um, but there's still this deep-rooted fear of women as witches. So many of the people being accused today of literally being in league with Satan are in fact women. So um, the first person who comes to mind is Hillary Clinton. I really can't think of any woman in modern history who has been more demonized than Clinton. Uh, if you do a search on the internet, you will see all kinds of horrible pictures. You can buy t-shirts of you know her riding a broom. And this might seem funny, but you know if you recall back in 2016, there were rumors that Hillary Clinton was running a child trafficking sex ring from a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. And there was a man who literally showed up there with an assault rifle to rescue these children. So she has literally been called a witch. There are people who claim that she's in league with Satan. She really has become a sort of demonic figure. And there are some other women politicians now who I think are starting to follow in um, the same path. So 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been described as a witch, literally a witch by some conservative Christians. You can find accusations of witchcraft swirling around Nancy Pelosi. So on one hand, you know, the lesson to draw from Salem is not to demonize women, which has been harder to achieve than we hoped. Um, And I suppose the other lesson that people at Salem learn themselves. So in the wake of these terrible accusations and the death of so many people, ordinary people in Salem were really repentant and realized that they um, had seen other people as the personification of evil instead of doing what Christians are supposed to do, which is to see that all people are flawed and all people are sinful and that evil is not confined to, you know, a small group of outsiders or enemies, but that all of us have frailties and sinfulness that we need to address. This has been Life and Faith. I'm Simon Smart, and Natasha and I have been speaking with Catherine Breckis for this episode on the greatest witch hunt in American history, one that continues to show us something less than flattering about ourselves. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, do share it with others who care about this stuff. You can leave us a rating or a review. You can subscribe and so on. We really appreciate the feedback. Next week. Some men are so larger than life that it's impossible to imagine them days old and diapered. But I've always found it the easiest thing in the world to see my father as a baby, lolling on his back in the middle of fresh sheets, smoking a fat cigar to congratulate himself on his own birth, stubbing out the cigar with great style in the face of his first teddy bear. Oh. Like every passage is like that. Yeah. And he that's, and you immediately want to hear about this guy. Yeah. <laughs>